You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. One of the trickiest social norms to navigate away from home is tipping. Is this too much? Too little? Turns out that it confounds economists too. We look into the motivations for the tippers and for the tipped and how that affects businesses overall. And now that the saga of Novak Djokovic's will-he-won't-he at the Australian Open has been resolved, we take a look at why the Serbian is an outlier among elite athletes and some surprisingly long-run effects that sports stars suffer after COVID-19. But first... Net zero emissions commitments are spilling out of businesses and even governments all the time these days. But the latest one is kind of surprising. ExxonMobil, America's biggest oil company. It's got a pretty checkered history on climate matters, from executives that denied the role of fossil fuels in climate change to allegations of disinformation campaigns, which generations of those same executives have denied. But now there does seem to be something of a change of heart going on. We've seen a significant shift on climate change from the most important oil company in the Western world, ExxonMobil, one that has actually historically been quite an opponent of action on tackling greenhouse gas emissions. Vijay Vaitiswaran is our global energy and climate innovation editor. They have just announced a policy which aims to get the company to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But more importantly, I think they've also taken on concrete targets for absolute levels of greenhouse gas emissions, promising to cut them by roughly 20% by 2030, 30% in their upstream operations where they make the oil and gas. So these are some concrete targets for the first time from the company, and that does represent a significant shift. And so how to get there? What, what are they going to have to do to, to meet those numbers? The company has laid out a plan that's built from the bottom up, has more than 30 divisions around the world. Each of them will be assigned concrete targets to achieve that 2030 target, and they'll be held accountable for their greenhouse gas cuts individually. At most, they promise to use carbon offsets, that is buying things like nature sinks or other forms of uh, reductions made somewhere else, maximum of a few percentage points if needed to reach their final target, rather than counting on them for the majority of what they need to get. But you mentioned ExxonMobil's past in terms of its reluctance to get on board with climate change concerns. Is this not just some greenwashing with some concrete numbers to it? So it's certainly right to be skeptical about announcements made by oil companies claiming to get greener, especially in the case of Exxon, where the company has a history of rubbishing climate science, of funding lobbying that undermines efforts to tackle climate change in Washington or Brussels or at the UN process. So lots of companies make airy-fairy promises about net zero and then don't really tell you the details. That's a good way to detect greenwashing, as it's called. 
I do think the, the level of specificity that's unveiled is a good sign. And secondly, they've moved off the dime on what they used to do, which is promise greenhouse gas intensity targets to concrete levels of cuts in greenhouse gases. That's a, a very geeky but important distinction because it, greenhouse gas intensities can be really used as a smokescreen to justify using ever more oil in future. As long as you do it, make it in a little bit less intensive way in the manufacturing of the oil, we can continue happily to be addicted to petroleum. Once you get into the world of reducing overall emissions, I think that actually becomes a lot harder to obfuscate or greenwash. And so to your mind, will these specific plans really do enough to lower Exxon's emissions? There are things missing in Exxon's announcement. It does not include in its promises uh, what uh, energy nerds would call uh, scope three emissions. That is the emissions that are actually created by uh, you and me burning petrol in our SUVs. With uh, an energy source like oil, 80 to 90% of the greenhouse gases are uh, released by the consumer, not during the manufacturing process or the supply chain. Companies like Shell based in Europe are accounting for those and promising to cut back in part by changing their product mix, uh, shifting from oil towards gas or towards renewables. Exxon has refused to do that. That's one thing that's missing. They are doing some of this when it comes to uh, methane emissions. They're working with independent third-party validators to verify that they are in fact reducing uh, methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas, emissions uh, in their operations. And that's a good sign. But what you're saying is that they're they're promising to set very concrete targets and, and have made a very big shift in tone, but ultimately only addressing what amounts to a very small slice of the pie. Uh, you're quite right. Unlike some other products uh, where a big share of the energy is consumed upstream, when it comes to petroleum, the lion's share, overwhelmingly 80% plus of the greenhouse gas harm that's done is when you and I drive in vehicles and burn the petrol. Exxon doesn't control which car that you and I buy or the fuel economy or how often we drive or why you and I chose to use our vehicles instead of walking or taking a bicycle. And so uh, does it make sense to force a company to take account of how products are used? Would you force Procter & Gamble and Unilever to be accountable for how nappies are used or, or toothpaste? I think it's a defensible point to say they control what, what's within their own companies operations and let's hold them to account on what they're promising and let's take ourselves and our governments to task on the policies and personal choices that lead to our preferences. So why why do this now though? I mean having been unrepentant for all these years as all these other firms have made uh, very you know significant commitments and so on Exxon has has decidedly not done so why is it taking what seems to be at least a big change in tone if not in in sort of substance now? So I asked the company and its CEO this question, and uh, the answer was, uh, well, this is not a big new announcement. It's an evolution. We've been on this journey for a long time. Um, and there is something to that in that the company has, since 2018, been working on very seriously greenhouse gas intensity targets, figuring out what it can do and wants to promise uh, really only what it can achieve. Uh, there's, there's something to that, but I think there's two other factors at work. One is there was a shareholder revolt last May where... Uh, in a shot heard around the world, three activist independent directors with a climate focus got elected against management's recommendations. And so they've been pushing the company to go in a greener direction. The second factor is tactical. They have a analyst day coming up in a couple of months uh, where they will be trumpeting their 
tremendous financial success. Uh, I think they want to keep the focus on what a fantastic year it's been and maybe keep some of the controversy that surely will be attracted by any climate policy from Exxon separate from that. So I think they're timing it to be a little bit buffered from the financial announcement. So is this a means for Exxon to, to do business differently and thereby profit more or, or simply to sort of tamp down concerns around this stuff? Uh, that's really, I think, at the heart of the dilemma today. Um, Exxon wants you to believe and its investors to believe that this is going to be a profitable energy transition. Um, and in com- when we compare what American oil companies generally, including Exxon, are doing, they are not investing in, for example, renewable energy, wind and solar, the way that BP, Total, uh, and to some degree Shell and the other European companies are rushing headlong into these green energies. Those tend to be relatively low return businesses. The American companies are instead betting on things like carbon capture and sequestration, uh, clean hydrogen, advanced biofuels, things that fit closer to their traditional businesses. That keeps them out of those low margin businesses. The American companies can't afford that. Investors are demanding high returns. But here's the dirty little secret. Things like hydrogen, carbon capture, they don't have a business model. There's no market willing to pay lots of money for those yet. And so what Exxon explicitly said this week and what other American companies are counting on is support from the government for these things, whether it's through subsidies or low carbon fuel standards or tax credits, the way that the governments have done for electric vehicles and for solar and wind, they're expecting this kind of support to make money. So again, big oil, if it's gonna make big profits, needs big government. Vijay, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. ExxonMobil's pledge comes at an interesting time for the oil industry. Pressure to go green is going up, but so is energy demand. Yesterday, oil prices hit a seven-year high. And last year, it wasn't big tech or finance that did the best in the S&P 500. It was energy. In the coming weeks, on our sister show, Money Talks, Vijay will be doing a deep dive on that growing tension. Look for Money Talks wherever highly refined podcasts are emitted. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. I have really always loved magic. When I was really young, my grandfather used to pull coins out of my ears and he would show me these amazing things. David Frank studies applied economics at Cornell University in New York. He's been researching the practice of tipping and his long-term love of magic has turned out to be useful. I was a teenager working in a restaurant and I was making tips and I wanted to see what I can do to increase the size of the tips that I was making. I started reading every single piece of literature that I could find on the tipping industry and tipping behavior. I found this idea of the norm of reciprocity, which is the idea that by leaving a minimal gift, waiters and waitresses can increase the size of their tips. And the study that I read did it with free candy. But I wanted to see if by leaving the signed and selected playing card that I just used in the magic routine, if that increased my tips. And it did, significantly. And I was beyond excited by these results. I started giving out cards all the time. 
David and his mentor Michael Lynn of Cornell University have published a study showing that by having a magician perform tricks, tips go up for all the servers, not just the magician. The research should be of particular interest to workers in America, where more than half of a server's wages can depend on tips. And it shows that, while tipping might seem like a simple economic transaction, it's anything but. Tipping is a really weird practice for economists to think about. Sumeya Keynes is our Britain economics editor. If you think about consumers minimizing their costs, which economists like to assume, then it's strange to think that they will also voluntarily hand over cash after receiving a service. So in many cases, you would leave a tip, even though if you left nothing, that wouldn't affect the service that you just received. So let's pull back from the hard-nosed economist's view here. It's got to be in part about being grateful for the service you just received. Yeah, gratitude, other fuzzy factors like that seem to matter. There have been studies looking into this. So one study published in 2010 found that 85% of American tippers said that they were following a social norm. 60% said that they were avoiding guilt. If you look at what happened during the pandemic, tipping increased, which looks like it was some sort of compensation for people working in really tough conditions. And then if you look at the evidence on what sorts of factors seem to affect the amount of a tip, it looks like tipping is affected by quite a few things that go beyond what you would normally think of as very specifically the quality of service provided. The weather, gender. There was a study looking at Uber drivers that found that that female Uber drivers were tipped between 10 and 12% more than male ones, although that wasn't the case when they were above the age of 65. But also, you know, you have to look at practices across countries. They are hugely different. And so the cultural context is, is really important. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very clear the difference between, for example, the tipping culture in America and Europe. Absolutely. In America, obviously tipping is a big deal. Tips added to a restaurant meal, so you know, discretionary payments from the customer are often around 20% of the tab. Whereas in Europe, in lots of European restaurants, customers will just round up the bill by a few euros. Then you've got Japan, where a tip can be seen as rude, that you would even need cash to motivate excellent service. There was one study looking across countries to see whether a stronger tipping culture was correlated with anything that you could measure. So is it the case that societies with a greater tolerance for inequality are more likely to have lots of tipping around? The evidence is that yes, tipping does seem to be more common when societies have this higher tolerance for inequality and also more masculine values, emphasizing achievement and economic relationships. I do think it would be going too far to say that economics is irrelevant, right? I mean, tipping is essentially often seen as an incentive to give good service. Does that logic hold up? As you say, you, you shouldn't give a tip for a service you've already received, right? The, the incentive is out of step in time. Yeah, and if you're only meeting somebody once, then it, it is hard to see how a tip would improve service next time. But even thinking about one-shot interactions and, and 
performance-based pay. For that to work, you would really hope that the pay would be tied to the performance of the individual. So one way of getting this question of is tipping related to service is to look at how sensitive tips are to measures of service quality, right? And it looks like tips are just not very sensitive to service quality at all. There was one study that found that only 5% of the variation in the size of the tip was related to measures of, of service quality. But in some cultures, in some countries, and, and I am thinking of America here, it is kind of central to everyone's kind of arithmetic about how the business is put together. Yeah, and, and if you think about the economics of why a business would have tipping, then if you compare a tipping model with a model where all of the service is just included in the base price, then a tipping model is a way of drawing in customers, right? It means that your upfront prices are going to be lower and then you can extract more at the end of the transaction when, it, when it's awkward to pull out. Thinking of other reasons why businesses would want to pay their staff using tips. In some places, tips are taxed less. In other places, it's easy to evade tax if you have cash tips. It also means that servers' incentives are aligned with those of the restaurant. Everyone wants to sell more food, shift more tables, if the server is sharing in the upside of more cash going through the restaurant by getting more tips. So in that view, tipping is good for employers too. Tipping is a way of passing risk to employees. So as business in America, something between 20 and 60% of servers' incomes can be in tips. This uncertainty of how much money they're going to get at the end of the night, that's a big deal. It is worth saying, though, that in some fancy high-end restaurants, tipping is great for servers, but the argument is that it's less great for the back-of-house staff, so chefs or dishwashers. It essentially means that 20% of the restaurant's revenue goes to servers. So what about a summary view insofar as one can take one about tipping? With your economist's hat on, is tipping defensible? Tipping is like Marmite. You either love it as an efficient way of aligning incentives or you hate it as a vehicle of discrimination, something that sows confusion about prices, that increases uncertainty for tip recipients, encourages tax evasion. Really, the way I look at it is it's about who's in control, who we think should be in control of pay. Should it be the customer? Should they have this much discretion about how much income people get? Or would it be better to give a bit more certainty to recipients of services? I think the international experience shows that you can have either model, but once you've chosen a particular model, it's very difficult to get out of that. Samaya, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Australian Open tennis tournament is well underway and one player is conspicuous by his absence. Novak Djokovic has been detained in Australia ahead of a court hearing that will determine whether the tennis star can stay in the country. The world number one was eventually booted out of Australia because he's determined not to get vaccinated. Entry with a visa requires double vaccination or a medical exemption. He is subject to the same rule as anyone else. On social media, a gag has been doing the rounds. Mr. Djokovic is the only player to have lost a Grand Slam by missing only two shots. But that's not the only way he's something of an exception. 
So Djokovic isn't particularly typical of elite sportsmen. James Francham is a data correspondent with The Economist. Across 11 elite men's sports for which we gathered data, men competing in those sports are likelier than the general population to be fully vaccinated. And tennis is among those sports. Yes, we looked at tennis. And in tennis, about 95% of the top 100 males have been fully vaccinated. And that compares with about 78% of adults in Europe and North America. And obviously, if you're a top male tennis player, as Djokovic is, you're going to be expecting to be travelling across borders and going to competitions in different countries around the world. And obviously, it helps massively, as Djokovic has found out to his cost, to be fully vaccinated when you're doing that travelling. And you say that seems to hold across the, the other sports you looked at. Yeah, that is right. If you look at America's National Hockey League, that has the highest vaccination rate of the 11 sports that we looked at. So 99% of its 700 or so players were fully vaccinated. Football and American football have a vaccination rate of 94% on average. And then golf and baseball have an average vaccination rate of 88%. And that compares with about 73% of American adults overall and about 90% of adults in Canada. So that, that pattern is universal? That holds for all sports? It's not universal. So if we look at England's Premier League, the footballers have some of the lowest vaccination rates of the 11 sports that we looked at. In mid-December, about 84% of players had one dose or more. So that is pretty low. And this has had actually quite a significant impact. As Britain was affected by Omicron in December and since, clubs have found that to date 341 players have tested positive since the end of November. And as a result, 19 games have been postponed in the Premier League. And that contrasts with across four other major European leagues. Very few games have been postponed, partly because they have higher vaccination rates. So clearly a low level of vaccination among players in league sports anyway has big costs for the clubs. But there's also the issue, I suppose, of the health of the players too, right? Yeah, of course. There's a performance impact too. And that's quite significant. So a study looked at the impact on football players after they've been infected with COVID. And there was decline in the number of minutes played by around 9%. And the number of passes completed fell by 6%. And those levels didn't return to normal for months. So clearly, yes, if you're unvaccinated, you therefore have a higher propensity to get the disease and obviously get a severe form of COVID. And that will then subsequently have an impact on the performance of football players and other sports people for that matter. And what about the broader effects of Mr. Djokovic's stand on this and, and having been headline uh, news for absolutely weeks? What, what do you suppose the effect has been on the sport and perhaps even on his own home country? On the basis that Djokovic is the most famous Serbian person in the world and therefore, by extension, the most famous man in Serbia, his clout in the country, one assumes, is going to be massive. Let's just look at the numbers for Serbia. And unfortunately, it has suffered the second highest number of excess deaths in the world per head of population. So that's the number of deaths over and above what you might expect. But only 45% of its population are vaccinated, despite there being no shortage of vaccines in the country. So Djokovic has an enormous clout in the country and his public hesitation to get vaccinated may well be costing the lives of his fellow countrymen, and that, to me, seems completely needless. 
James, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.